This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Virginia 7th District Representative Abigail Spanberger. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net, providing individualized protection on more than 490 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Virginia's 7th District Representative Abigail Spanberger is a staunch supporter of agriculture and nutrition programs. She sees the need for bipartisan support for farmers, conservation programs, and the nation's hungry. Approaching the writing of a new farm bill, Spanberger sees challenges and opportunities. She's hopeful for success in the 118th Congress. On the Agriculture Committee in particular, uh, I have long respected uh, now Chairman Thompson. Uh, as a as ranking member of the full committee, he always came to my subcommittee hearings when I was chair of the Conservation and Forestry Subcommittee. Um, there's been some places where we've disagreed on policy and agreed on policy, and I have always found him to be um, really good to work with, and we we came to resolution, and in the end, uh, both got what we wanted and did right by our farmers um, on some of the legislative issues that we were working on. So I'm, I'm pretty hopeful for the Agriculture Committee. I, I do think there's going to probably be some hiccups along the way because it's a farm bill year, and uh, doing something as substantial as, as the farm bill, uh, there's going to be differences of opinion. Uh, I will say on a, on a lighter note, one of the major differences is uh, uh, <laughs> the Republican majority is is very good at keeping time on our votes. Uh, the, the Democratic majority was a little bit uh, slower to, to gavel out a vote. So now uh, people used to sort of lollygag on their way over to vote. So now, now we know we need to get there because they're going to they're gonna gavel us out and people might miss a vote. So a little bit of the, the insider experience in terms of what the differences are. Talking about uh, spending, how big is the debate going on now between the speaker and the president regarding the debt ceiling, and how much impact do you see that having on a new farm bill? I think, well, it's an interesting question, so I'll I'll give a couple different answers. Uh, I I think that one of the elements that's, one of the things that's currently happening is a lot of the negotiations related to the debt ceiling are no longer really occurring in public. If you go back uh, two months, three months, you know, there was certainly a lot of uh, posturing. Uh, some Republican members who were saying, absolutely, there will be no debt ceiling uh, deal. Some Democratic members, uh, and I'm among them, saying not having a debt ceiling deal would be catastrophic and crush our economy and be terrible for national security. Um, and so a lot of that kind of posturing and back and forth has, has gone by the wayside, and a lot of those conversations have gone um, behind um, behind closed doors, not in a kind of secretive way, but in an effort to be productive. You know, those of us who recognize how incredibly damaging 
a default would be continue to make clear our uh, desire to see us, you know, solve this issue well before June. You know, in in our example in Virginia's seventh district, you know, I hosted a uh, press conference with our local chamber of commerce and with local business leaders to talk about the ramifications on the local economy if there was to be a shutdown. You know, in addition to the challenge of what it would actually mean to have the United States default. Um, so I, I'm cautiously, very cautiously optimistic that we're tiptoeing towards um, a, a deal that's going to put us in a, in a, that's going to avoid catastrophe. Um, and uh, certainly there are many, many conversations um, and Problem Solvers Caucus, which I'm a part of, uh, half Democrats, half Republicans, uh, has been very active on this issue as well, really trying to find a path forward. It's sort of a darned if you do, darned if you don't situation because there are clearly needs in the country, but then there is mm-hmm. also the looming threat of uh, the other, uh, uh, what should we say, of the economic race in the globe right now, especially as China's President Xi Jinping is intent on developing their military presence and also their economic presence in the globe. They'd like to replace the dollar as the currency of the world. That's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the the points that you laid out are exactly why we cannot risk the full faith and credit of the United States. You know, and and what's important to me is debt and deficit issues are important. If you're talking about China, you know, it's a national security issue that China is uh, the – holds American debt and, and a substantial, substantial amount of it. So there, you know, I, I, I certainly agree with any colleague that says we need to address our debt and deficit issues. And, and notably, over the past few years, we have re- uh, reduced the deficit by more than a trillion dollars, which is a step in the right direction. Obviously, we're not done yet. But um, addressing debt and deficit issues, having thoughtful conversations about the long-term fiscal stability of our nation and our spending choices can be and must be separate and apart from whether or not we're going to pay the bills for things we've already done, for dollars we've already spent, for loans we've already taken. And that's where, when we're looking at the the threat of a rising China or the challenges we're seeing with Putin or with Iran or you know, other adversary nations, and not just to mention kind of the United States' place in the world, we would jeopardize our national security, our economic security, and our long-term place of global leadership were we, the United States of America, to default on our credit and to jeopardize the full faith and credit of the United States. Um, and, and so it's absolutely an imperative. And, and I think that, you know, certainly if there was a vote tomorrow, the vote would be there to raise the debt ceiling. The vote would be there to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. Um, but kind of getting to that point when they actually bring the vote forward is, is the challenge. And to the discussion about the Farm Bill, uh, certainly, if we proceed into the spring and the conversations are not going as effectively or as quickly uh, as as those of us who want to address this quickly uh, would like to see, then I, I think that there's not necessarily going to be a negative impact on the Farm Bill in terms of the programs that we choose to support or the choices that we make. I think the impact would be uh, it would be an enormous distraction if we're worried about a potential default um, and that's the kind of the conversation of the day then you know and that's what's taking up floor time on the floor um, and committee time then I, I think that that could be uh, pull attention away from the uh, farm bill 
but I don't think that it would – I don't think we run the risk of having farm bill programs um, majorly impacted because of the delay in dealing with the debt ceiling. How much of a melting pot is Ukraine right now and what appears to be closer ties between the Chinese and Russia? So this is a this is an important issue, and certainly, uh, you know, it, it matters. It should matter to every American, even if it's not top of mind in, in people's daily lives. Uh, but you know, and I, I have a national security background. I was a former intelligence officer with the CIA, and, and now, uh, since coming to Congress, I've served on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and, and now I serve on the Intelligence Committee. Um, and and so there's really um, significant concern. I mean, everything from uh, their grain production to source materials for fertilizer production, you know, if we're speaking specific to agriculture in terms of the impact of this war, which, you know, was started when Russia invaded a sovereign nation. Um, and, and now we see Russia is very clearly aligning with China and with Iran. And so ensuring that Russia is defeated, that they are not able to claim victory in Ukraine, uh, for, at a very tactical level, is incredibly important given uh, the, the the resources and the economic um, importance of Ukraine. And but on a kind of moral and and, and foundational values based sense, ensuring that a, a young democratic nation that is fighting for its freedom is able to attain that freedom uh, is a worthy cause consistent with American values particularly when we see those values challenged by the likes of, of China and Russia. Um, and, you know, this is a very bipartisan issue. It is a very bipartisan issue uh, in terms of our support for Ukraine. Um, and there might be some loud voices here or there who are trying to detract from, uh, from American support. But across the board, it is a bipartisan issue uh, because it's a, it's a fight for democracy. And, and frankly, at this point, you know, the United States has been demonstrating tremendous leadership on the global stage, pulling our allies together in leveraging sanctions, pulling our allies together in supplying aid um, and, you know, helping organize the aid that our uh, our, our counterparts, uh, both in NATO and beyond, um, are, are able to to provide to, to Ukraine. And, um, you know, I support the Ukrainian people. The strength that they have shown is, is amazing. And, you know, <laughs> frankly, the, the strength of Ukrainian farmers, uh, just in our agriculture hearing, agriculture committee hearing last, uh, earlier this, or last week, um, there were questions asked about, um, uh, Ukraine. And, uh, it's, it's pretty stunning, uh, how much uh, work Ukrainian farmers are continuing to put into their fields, uh, despite the fact that so many of them, you know, risk dying uh, just just to feed their their countrymen. Is there a way to revise nutrition programs to reform nutrition and still be effective that would appease both sides of the aisle? Well, I think an important uh, a piece of this, and and again, I'll go back to the the. Agriculture Committee hearing that we just had where we heard from the president of the Farm Bureau talking about, you know, the robust farm bill that he wants to see us put through that includes, you know, all of our uh, support to, for, uh, you know, crop insurance and protecting first generation farmers and, um, and, and certainly, uh, you know, our commodities programs that are so incredibly vital and, and some of the rural development programs, et cetera, et cetera, and 
you know, also called out by name the importance of the nutrition programs that are part of this uh, larger uh, substantial piece of legislation. Uh, you know, you know I, I mean, notably, this is not just a suburban issue. Certainly, uh, food security programs are important, particularly in rural America, um, and they are incredibly valuable. And we saw throughout the pandemic when we did have really expanded programs for access to school nutrition programs for kids, uh, the the value that they brought, I heard from school districts that said that their ability to buy at scale actually saved them dollars. The ability to have kids um, not have a stigma attached to needing support uh, because their family had fallen on hard times, that that was incredibly important um, within the school district and that kids were learning and alert and not hungry. And so I think, you know, from a larger societal standpoint, certainly having kids in, you know, sitting in seats at school ready to learn is important. Um, But we do know that, you know, emergency SNAP benefits just ended. And so we're already seeing kind of a a pullback from from the SNAP uh, support that has been available to to families across Virginia and the country. You know, I'm, I'm always keen to talk about areas where there might be, um, you know, potentials for making a program better, be it greater transparency, recognizing that there might be, you know, waste within the system, uh, and, and a couple kind of easy fixes if we're looking at school nutrition. I say easy, but I think they're pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, we have these programs that are meant to nourish kids, but yet federal regulations prohibit kids from being able to have whole milk as part of their school lunch. And so... I'm working with G.T. Thompson, who's leading this legislation, and I'm co-leading it, uh, to to change that. So if, you know, in a school lunch program, we want to ensure that the, the healthiest option, uh, you know, nutrient-rich whole milk that we know generally, a lot of kids prefer whole milk to any of the uh, reduced fat varieties is is available to them. It's a it's an easy fix to make a program something that we're not going to see. You know those cartons of milk go into the trash can because kids don't drink them. So you know it's not necessarily the sort of fraud, waste, and abuse that you're asking about, but it's looking at a program and what's working. What do what do people want? In this case, it's you know elementary school kids. That, you know a lot of them want whole milk. Um, looking at some of the SNAP benefits. You know there's so many limitations put on SNAP. Uh, that sometimes in today's day and age don't make sense. As a sixth-generation farmer, I can confidently say that uh, conservation has always been a part of farming, uh, doing the right thing, I think is what my granddad would have said. But now there is this word sustainability. I know conservation is important to you, and you've worked uh, very hard in that area. How do you see the sustainability debate, even the extra dollars that have been added to conservation programs from the 117th Congress. What role do you see conservation playing in this 23 Farm Bill? One of the first things I heard when I was first elected from one of the producers I represent was farmers are the original conservationists. Right? If you don't take care of your land, you don't have your crop. Uh, if you don't take care of your land, you can't feed your animals. And this is something that you know I, I bring back to my colleagues who aren't on the Agriculture Committee, who don't represent a district with any agriculture and who are kind of a, uh, who, who just don't have an awareness of what's happening on the ground in so many, um, in, in so many agricultural and rural communities. So f- for me, as, as now ranking member of the Conservation uh, Research and Biotechnology Committee, you know, my, my priorities and where I think we'll potentially find uh, a, a good level of success is protecting the new conservation dollars 
as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, you know, we know that those programs have long been oversubscribed and underfunded. So a lot more people want them than are able to get access to them, and there's just not enough dollars uh, for those who might be eligible. Um, it's important that we increase dollars to those programs. That's been great. But we also need to prioritize uh, conservation-related technical assistance and the workforce at NRDC, um, you know, and certainly ensuring that there's a pipeline of really passionate professionals who can be supportive actors um, in, in, in the conservation workforce. And, and I hear a lot about the issues related to technical assistance. I just met with um, the Virginia Farm Bureau and a, a, a great roundtable of uh, producers in Virginia's 7th District last week. And as is the case, anytime I meet with a far farmer one-on-one -on -one or in a roundtable circumstance, the issue of technical assistance came up. And not only technical assistance, but technical assistance from people who understand a particular region, a particular crop type. Um, we saw in uh, with the final passage, ultimately, of the Growing Climate Solutions Act, that, that there are ways that we can look at how to support um, what what some might call climate smart ag practices, right? So we know that there are producers across the country that are um, taking on conservation practices that sequester carbon, that, uh, you know, be it no-till practices, be it use of cover crops or rotational grazing, for foresters across Virginia that are employing practices that ensure that they have healthy new growth and are just pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. But how do we match those folks up with a trusted potential, again, only if they want it, uh, access to a carbon market where they can actually get paid for uh, what they are doing on their land, which is sequestering carbon and uh, supporting really important practices. So with the passage of that piece of legislation, you know, I think we took a step in the right direction of recognizing that we have the ability kind of in this larger sustainability or in the conservation um, uh, conversation where we can make sure that producers are getting credit for the work that they're already doing um, and not just credit, but uh, in the case of the uh, Growing Climate Solutions Act would be able to actually monetize that, that they're doing work that has a value um, and making sure that they can uh, see that value uh, themselves. So from from this perspective, the economics of farming today, uh, it's a lot more expensive to plant crops and care for livestock than it was when the 18 bill was written. So do you think agriculture can justify seeing a larger baseline to be able to provide adequate risk protection for producers? So this was a, a topic in my meeting last week with uh, local producers in, in Madison County, Virginia, uh, part of the 7th District, where we were talking about some of the major risk factors um, that that they're seeing and, and, and the – the, the challenges, be it, you know, overall input costs have gone up. Uh, labor continues to be a challenge. I've got poultry producers in my district who have been impacted by the avian flu and not just uh, potential illness uh, within their flock, but also um, access issues when it comes to penicillin and medication that they need. Um, and, and I think the overarching goal uh, and I'll gladly speak for the entirety of the Agriculture Committee, Democrats and Republicans alike, is to ensure that American agriculture uh, is able to get through um, this continued ongoing hurdle. 
because the ability and the need um, to uh, to provide our nation here domestically with food, fuel, and fiber is, I mean, it's a national security priority in addition to being the livelihood of so many Americans across the country. And I'll say that, you know, there are um, so many producers who are just e- extraordinarily hardworking people. Um, and in a circumstance where the, you know, the ebbs and flows of the economy can be make or break, and I mean, the you know, margins are already so, so slim for so many of our nation's farmers, making sure that they're protected um, if it's uh, a hard year weather-wise or protected if it's a hard year disease-wise, um, de- depending upon their crop or, or, or their animal, um, and, and making sure that those who are even entering uh, the, the farm workforce uh, are able to to get that kind of head start and, and start strong as a new or beginning farmer. And, and certainly we have new and beginning farmers. Can the 118th get past the border and work to uh, provide an adequate workforce for agriculture, or will that always be a stumbling block? I think there's a, a kind of a, a larger issue beyond the need in agriculture, which is really the need to look at two separate conversations, wholly related but separate. The issue of border security, the reality that you know, transnational criminal organizations are trafficking fentanyl and other drugs across our border, uh, that they're trafficking vulnerable people who might want to come to the United States. Like That is an important, vital topic that our Congress has to contend with. Separate, though wholly related, is the issue that the United States uh, has always uh, really relied on labor of uh, immigrants in this country, be it, you know, in the hospital systems that I represent, you know, they're having trouble uh, getting visas for nurses and doctors, and they have a workforce issue. Uh, certainly in the agricultural communities I represent, they're having trouble getting the visas that they need for H-2A workers. Uh, and, and the, the list goes on and on. And so as a, as a country, we have to have a larger conversation about immigration, how to make changes, adjustments, and reforms to our immigration system. And, and we have to have an earnest conversation about the security of our nation. And, uh, and, and, and those conversations can happen concurrently. Uh, but I think that we have seen time and time again, Congress get bogged down when conflating the two, you know, a person who wants to come to the United States and work on a farm uh, in in Orange County, Virginia, uh, is a person who wants to come to Virginia and do good work, vital, important work that, you know, our communities need them to do. And that's separate and apart from, you know, a, a transnational criminal organization that's pushing, uh, you know, drugs over the border that, uh, you know, that, that we know are responsible for the deaths of thousands upon thousands of Americans. Um, so contending with both of those very difficult issues, uh, certainly they, they do go hand in hand, but they are separate issues. And I think the more that we can look at them through what changes do we need to make for our, to our immigration system to stay consistent with our values and meet our economic need, and uh, what changes do we need to make to our border security system to protect um, Americans. And, and I will say in uh, December, in our end of year then a final omnibus, we added additional funding for more um, 
uh, personnel uh, at our borders. Uh, we added additional funding um, to kind of heighten border security, and I was proud I got a piece of legislation passed related to um, uh, fentanyl and kind of the unique challenge it, it presents because of the fact that it is so potent in such small quantities um, and, and, frankly, far easier to smuggle and conceal in, in crossing it through a port of entry, which is a, a major challenge for uh, our Border Patrol agents trying to do those interdictions. Congresswoman, we want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. You've been here before, and you know that today you have the last word. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for this great conversation. Uh, and to you know anyone listening who's got ideas, uh, this this is the time to make sure that that your member of Congress knows uh, kind of what matters in the community. Hopefully. Um, like like me and like the rest of my colleagues on the Ag Committee, people are doing outreach to um, the producers who, who, who feed and clothe and power America. And so I just want to say I'm grateful and I'll be advocating for priorities that continue to uh, support uh, those who've been in agriculture for years or for generations um, and those who dream of someday uh, joining the ranks of, of those who, uh, you know, drive one of the most vital elements of our economy and our communities and our history and that's agriculture so thank you so much and i'm proud to serve on the committee and i'm proud to serve virginia seventh district thanks for having me on our thanks to virginia seventh district representative abigail spanberger our guest this week on open bike agripulse open bike is brought to you by ncis the national crop insurance services crop insurance the smartest most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.